that cold winter night, these shepherds who probably kept the sheep headed to sacrifice through an act of sovereign grace heard the gospel, believed the gospel, and were allowed to witness the birth of the perfect Lamb of God. Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. Hi, I'm Bill Wright. Charles Wesley once wrote, Born thy people to deliver, born a child and yet a king, born to reign in us forever, now thy gracious kingdom bring. A hymn about the promised coming of Jesus Christ. Today, Tom concludes his current series with part four of The Birth Announcement of God's Son. You've heard the account of the birth of Christ Jesus on a cold winter's night long, long ago. Like the shepherds, you've heard the good news of the arrival of the one who brings salvation, rescue from sin, judgment, and condemnation. But the question remains, how will you respond to this incredible announcement? And that's exactly what Tom will examine today as he looks at a few ways you can respond to Jesus and the implications those responses have for your life, here and into eternity. Will you let him reign in your life? Let's join our teacher right now here on The Word Unleashed. Now notice the angel finishes his announcement by giving the shepherds directions about how to find this child. Verse 12, this will be a sign for you You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. The sign both proved to them when they found the child in this way that in fact what the angels told them was true, but it also helped direct them to the right child because there may have been a number of of young infants in Bethlehem that night and all of them would have been wrapped in cloths. This was the common first century practice in Palestine to to wrap strips of claws around the children's extremities to give them that sense of security like they'd experienced in the womb. But certainly there was only one newborn in Bethlehem that night that was lying in a manger. Now, you know, we hear the Christmas story and we use the word manger and it sort of gets this glow about it. There was no glow in this manger. The word manger is feed trough. You'll find the baby who is God lying in a feed trough. A very early tradition dating to the early second century describes Jesus' place of birth as a cave that was usually used as a stable. Justin Martyr, great church father, in his dialogue with Trefo, wrote in the second century that Jesus was born in a cave. Origen speaks of the cave where Jesus was born, and that that cave was still pointed out in his day. Almost certainly, it was the cave that you can still visit today under the church of the nativity. The tradition goes back that far. It's about 39 feet long by 10 feet wide. St. Jerome, the early church father, lived for a time, for most of his life actually, in the adjacent cave, and That's where he translated the Latin Vulgate, and he said that the manger was still visible in his day. He described the manger as a a groove in the rock surrounded on both sides by plain walls of clay. 
It was located, he said, in a small side cave off of the larger cave. This unique child would be found in a most unique place. Now with that, the angel's announcement is finished and something dramatic happens. Verse 13, And suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host. Literally, the text says, A multitude of the army of heaven. Hundreds, if not thousands of angels, suddenly appeared. This grates on our modern and postmodern ears, but the Scripture very clearly says that this planet is at this very moment surrounded by angels and demons. And here, God, as He did in the Old Testament, opens the eyes of the shepherds to actually see an army of angels surrounding them. Instead of just one witness to the birth of His Son, God brings an army of witnesses but this is an army not, may, not coming to make war, but coming rather to announce peace. Notice verse 13, And suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of the army of heaven, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. Now, notice what Luke doesn't say. Luke doesn't say that the angels sang. That's, of course, very common in in a lot of our uh, Christmas carols and so forth. It is possible that they sang. We know that they sang at the creation of the world. Apparently, the angels were created shortly before the universe was created. We're told that they sang for joy at the creation. It's possible that they were singing here. We do know this. There is certainly rhythm and parallelism in what they said so much so that you'll notice our translators set verse 14 off in our Bibles as poetry. So it's possible that they sang this. What is very clear is that these angels were not paid to show up and do this gig. They were truly captivated by what was happening there that night. Don't forget, these angels had seen and worshipped the eternal Son of God in heaven for thousands of years since they were created. They had watched the eternal Son create this universe. They had perhaps watched, certainly heard about the fall in Genesis 3. They had witnessed again and again man's sin. They had heard the prophecies of the coming Redeemer Peter tells us in 1 Peter 1 that the angels long to understand and to look into the things concerning man's salvation. Perhaps these angels understood Isaiah 53. Perhaps they knew that the Father would punish His own Son as man's substitute to purchase redemption. But this you can be sure of. The angels were overwhelmed with the great love of God that would move him to allow his eternal son to come into this world as one of the creatures he made, as a tiny human infant, and to do so in such amazing poverty and humility. William Hendrickson writes, Whether literally sung or not, the words of Luke 2.14 are above all else an outpouring of adoration. These angels never before had been so thrilled. No wonder, therefore, that from the bottom of their hearts they shout, Glory to God in the highest! Now notice verse 14 has two parts. It is a hymn of praise directed toward God, and it is a blessing directed toward men. 
Notice, first of all, the hymn of praise toward God. Verse 14 says, Glory to God in the highest. In the highest doesn't mean to the highest degree. It's a simple contrast to on the earth. In other words, glory to God in heaven. The angels were expressing both their desire that this happened and the reality that it was happening, that in heaven at that moment, God was receiving and will always receive glory. Why? For sending Christ the Lord into the world as a man in order to accomplish man's spiritual rescue. Ultimately, your salvation is not primarily about you. It is about the glory of God. Of the angel's hymn, John Calvin wrote, Let us remember then the final cause why God reconciled us to himself through his only begotten Son. It was that he might glorify his name by revealing the riches of his grace and his boundless mercy. This is what Paul said in Ephesians 1 when rehearsing our salvation three times. He says, to the praise of his glory. But there's also from the angel's lips, a blessing toward man. Notice verse 14 again, peace on earth. Don't you love those words? Peace on earth. You remember the prophecy of Isaiah 9, 6, that the Messiah who would come would be the prince of peace, the prince who would bring real peace. In the first century, they were living in an external peace, Caesar Augustus, you remember, was the first and the greatest Roman emperor. He had ended a century of civil wars and battling for the throne of Rome. And he had ushered in a period of of uncommon and unparalleled peace, prosperity, and greatness for Rome. What historians call the Pax Romana, the Roman peace. But Augustus' peace, while it was wonderful, wasn't real peace. A first century philosopher by the name of Epictetus, wrote these words, While the emperor may give peace from war on land and sea, he cannot give peace of heart, for which man yearns more than even for outward peace. But you see, the peace Jesus brings is exactly that. Not first peace of of heart, but peace first and foremost with God, which brings peace of heart. That's why in Romans chapter 5, verse 1, Paul says, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. This is what Jesus brings. But notice the angel said true peace with God is only, notice verse 14, among men with whom he is pleased. What does that cryptic expression mean? Literally, the Greek text says this, peace among men of good pleasure or good favor. It means Peace among men who are the objects of God's good pleasure or God's good favor. Leon Morris, writing on this passage, says, The angels are saying that God will bring peace for men on whom his favor rests. There is an emphasis on God, not man. It is those whom God chooses rather than those who choose God of whom the angels speak. John MacArthur puts it this way in his commentary, in each case where the word goodwill occurs in the New Testament, it refers to God's sovereign good pleasure. So a better rendering here might be peace toward men on whom God's sovereign pleasure rests. God's peace is not a reward for those who have goodwill. 
but a gracious gift to those who are the objects of his goodwill. In other words, the second half of verse 14 is a lesson in sovereign grace. It reminds us of how God describes himself. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. What better better illustration could there be of sovereign grace than the shepherds, the ones hearing this announcement? They were sinful, they were despised, they were dishonest, they were untrustworthy. There's no indication in the text that they were looking for the Messiah. And yet it was to them God sovereignly displayed his grace in the announcement of the birth of Christ. They are perfect examples of those on whom God's sovereign grace has come to rest. Now notice in verse 15, Luke tells us that although the angels had appeared suddenly, they left gradually when the angels had gone away from them. The construction here has the idea of their, their slowly sort of filing out. The shepherds watched as this army of angels gradually ascended into heaven. What an amazing announcement. We weren't there to witness this announcement personally, but understand this. We have received the same unprecedented revelation about this child, not in an angelic announcement, but through a book breathed out by God himself, announcing to us the spiritual rescue in his son. So we've seen the unlikely witnesses, and we've seen the grand announcement. I want you to notice thirdly the right reaction, how to respond. How to respond. You see, the shepherd's response to the good news that they received is a wonderful model for us. This is how you ought to respond to the Savior's birth. First of all, as they did, you should believe the good news. Notice verse 15. When the angels had gone away from them into heaven, the shepherds began saying to one another, let us go straight to Bethlehem then and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. The emphasis here is on their response to the message they heard. Notice, first of all, they were convinced that the revelation was from God. This thing which the Lord has made known to us. They believed the source of the message was God. And they were absolutely certain of the truthfulness of the message. Notice, let's hurry to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened. They believed the content of the message. And they were in a hurry to obey Now, the angel didn't command them to go into Bethlehem directly, but the command is implied in giving them directions about how to find the child. And they were eager to do what God had said. By the way, that's always a sign of true faith. Where a person truly believes in Christ, there is always an eagerness to obey what God has said. Verse 16, So they came in a hurry and found their way to Mary and Joseph and the baby as he lay in the manger. After they had worked out the details of how to care for their sheep, they leave the sheep in a hurry for the city. We aren't told how long they had to search. We aren't told exactly how they found the child, but their search was rewarded. They found him. But understand, the point of their response is that they believed the good news. If you want to be spiritually rescued from God's wrath against your sin then you must believe the good news of the Savior's birth as well. You must believe the the revelation is from God. You must believe the content of that good news, that there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. 
The shepherd's search for Jesus illustrates what true saving faith looks like. Because when you truly believe the good news of the gospel, you come to Jesus. Not physically like they did, but spiritually. That's why Jesus so often invites people to believe in him by saying, come to me. You remember Matthew chapter 11, verse 28, come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. This is an invitation to believe just like the shepherds believe. Do you understand why Luke recorded this? Not only so that we could know the historical truth of what happened surrounding Jesus' birth, but in Luke 2, God is presenting you with the same announcement he presented to the shepherds so that you can respond by believing the good news. The second way that we must respond is once you have believed the good news, and that's true of many of us here, you must share the good news. Verse 17, when they had seen this, when they had seen Mary and Joseph and Jesus in the manger, they made known the statement which had been told them about this child. By the way, it's interesting, isn't it, that what they gave witness to wasn't even what they saw with their eyes, it was to the revelation they had received. To make known means to reveal, to declare, to explain. They told others the good news they had been told. Who did they tell? Well, the text implies that probably as they searched, and certainly after they searched and found the child, they ran into a number of people in the town of Bethlehem, and they told them. Notice verse 18. And all who heard it wondered. They were amazed, astonished at the things which were told them by the shepherds. And of course, the shepherds also told Mary and Joseph. In fact, wouldn't it, have been, wouldn't it have been a great delight to have been there that night, to have witnessed all of these things and to, to have heard the interchange as Mary and Joseph explained to the shepherds what, what they have heard, what Gabriel said to them, what they had experienced, and then to hear from the shepherds what God had just done in revealing to them the good news. Notice Mary's reaction in verse 19. But Mary treasured all these things, pondering them in her heart. Treasured has the idea of she held them in her memory. She remembered them well. I think Luke especially mentions this because most scholars agree that it was from Mary's firsthand account that Luke got his information and is sharing with us the details of what happened. But she didn't just remember them. Notice it says she pondered them in her heart. It's an interesting Greek word. It's a word which literally means she threw them together in her mind. In other words, she's trying to reconcile them. She's trying to understand how they relate to each other. Mary is meditating on the truth of who her son is and what he will accomplish. She wanted to understand. And Mary's example is a great encouragement to us. Because if, like Mary, you have already believed the truth of the gospel... You should continue to think about and meditate on who Christ is and what he's accomplished in the gospel. You remember when you first came to Christ? You remember that, that sense of euphoria that you felt? Listen, that may fade, that may subside, but what replaces it is a growing and deepening desire to know more about Jesus Christ, to understand more about what he has done for you. 
you will long to have a fuller, more profound understanding about the person and work of Jesus Christ. That is always true for every believer. If you're in Christ, that's true of you. If you don't have that, then you need to seriously question the reality of your faith. But the point here is the shepherds repeated the good news to Mary and Joseph, to everyone who would listen. There's a powerful lesson here for us. You see, once you have truly experienced God's sovereign grace, you can't help yourself. You want others to know. Again, Christian, you remember right after you were converted how eager you were for others to hear the good news? You should still be eager as you understand more about what he's done. And any lack of zeal on your part really betrays sinful ingratitude. We should share the good news with others. There's a third way that we have to respond to the good news, and that is to glorify and praise God for the good news. Notice verse 20. The shepherds went back to their sheep, glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen, just as had been told them. You see, wherever God displays His sovereign grace and salvation, there will be praise. If you truly know and love Jesus, your life will be marked by an attitude of praise and worship. You won't have any trouble prying apart your lips to express your praise in song. You will love to sing praise to God, and your prayers will be filled with praise as well. In the words of Hebrews, you will continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that give thanks to his name. Now, there's one thing that I alluded to that I haven't told you about these shepherds. The sheep they kept probably weren't ordinary sheep. The Jewish Mishnah tells us that the the sheep that were kept in and around Bethlehem throughout the year were the sheep that were destined to be sacrifices at the temple. So a few days later, these shepherds likely took a few of their lambs, the less than five miles journey to Jerusalem, and there those lambs were slaughtered as sacrifices. And while they were at the temple, they undoubtedly continued to tell their story about the birth of the Savior, who is Christ the Lord, to anyone who would listen. Perhaps they told the story to Anna, an old woman named Anna that we meet later in Luke 2, or perhaps to an old man named Simeon that we also meet in Luke 2. But understand this. That cold winter night, these shepherds who probably kept the sheep headed to sacrifice through an act of sovereign grace heard the gospel, believed the gospel, and were allowed to witness the birth of the perfect Lamb of God. And their response to the birth of the Savior, Christ the Lord, is exactly how your response should be this week as you celebrate with your family and friends. You must respond first by believing the good news, believing the gospel. And if you've already come to believe the gospel, share the gospel with others. Open your mouth and tell others about the wonderful news. And as you gather on Christmas Day, Christmas Eve and Christmas Day with your family and friends, praise and glorify God for the good news. There has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord.
That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed. And that concludes our current series, The Birth Announcement of God's Son. Join us next time for a brand new series as Tom once again takes us to God's Word. But Tom, before we end our time today, how about sharing a closing thought with us? You know, Bill, I think it's appropriate that we are finishing up our study of this after Christmas because it's so important for us to retain this fresh in our minds. It's easy once the celebration's done, once the gifts are opened, the Christmas decorations begin to go away, to lose sight of the reality of what we celebrate at Christmas. And I hope, as we've looked at the response of the shepherds, that your own heart has been brought to the fact of our response. How should we respond to the birth of Jesus Christ? And the response of the shepherds continued on after the birth. And may ours as well. As we look at this new year, may we continue to grow in our love for, our devotion to, our commitment to follow and obey Jesus Christ our Lord, the King who came. Thanks, Tom. And friend, to serve as an elder in a local church is a noble ambition, but it comes with a sobering responsibility. The existing church leadership must actively be seeking to identify, equip, and appoint elders to continue the work of ministry. Invite your pastor and other church leaders to join Tom Pennington February 18th in South Lake, Texas, as he is a featured speaker at this year's XL Ministries training conference, Becoming Biblical Elders. Visit thewordunleashed.org for more information and registration links to the conference. The Word Unleashed is made possible because of the prayers and financial gifts of individuals like you. Please consider partnering with us. You can find out how to do so by visiting thewordunleashed.org. That's thewordunleashed.org. And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team, I'm Bill Wright. Thanks for listening to The Word Unleashed, exalting God's glory, explaining God's truth.